Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Midden and we are broadcasting live from the AIDS 2018 conference in Amsterdam. This week we are lucky enough to be joined by two guests. We have Mercy Angalube, a trustee of the Sophia Forum, and our own journalist Sophie Edwards. Mercy and Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. No worries, I'm delighted to be here. So there is so much for us to cover. We're more than halfway through the conference now. One of the big topics that everyone was talking about leading up and then we've heard throughout the week is about adolescent girls, one of many, but I want to start there. Um, Sophie, I want to start with you. Can you kind of give an overview of what this conversation has looked like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so last week coming into the conference, there was uh, a big new report came out from UNAIDS which showed that uh, prevention of HIV new infections is kind of stalled. We're, we're still at 1.8 million, which is, is not great considering seven years ago in 2000, it was 2 million. And the target is 500,000 new infections by 2020. So looks like we're unlikely to get there um, at current levels of progress and funding. And when you sort of drill down into that data, one of the groups that's getting the most high numbers of new infections is actually adolescent girls aged sort of 15 to 25. And so there's been a lot of discussion around kind of why is that happening, how to reach those girls, um, and how to get those, those rates down. Mercy, you are actually about to go into a session where you're going to be talking about the intersection of gender, health, HIV. Could you share a bit from your perspective kind of where you feel we are on girls' adolescent health and a bit about your own story? Yeah, no, I think we certainly have a long way to go. And in the UK, we're sort of experiencing um, sort of in my capacity as a trustee of the Sophia Forum, it's kind of a battle for prep um, in the NHS in England. But if you look to Scotland and you look to Wales that have NHS um, availability of prep, women are the ones that we're seeing that we're not being able to target to roll that out to. Um, and so what is it that we're not doing for the communities of young women that are at risk of HIV and how are we making sure that people know that they are at risk, particularly in high income countries? And you know, if you look across to Eastern Europe, you know, the rate of infections there is increasing hugely. And so how are we educating young girls and empowering them to be able to make decisions about their health that will benefit them in the long run? So I want to drill down into that a little bit because the audience largely for this show are global health professionals mm -hmm. and people who are working really granularly on the programming of it. Okay. What do you think that HIV programs tend to miss when it comes to adolescent girls? I think largely HIV programs miss the involvement of young people from the very beginning to the rollout. And I think I'm really grateful that there's a youth, a big youth voice at this conference. And I would say going forward, if we're going to target adolescent girls, we need adolescent girls to be within the whole program from start to finish so that we can advise on what our community wants, what we need and what might work for some people. Certainly. I mean, it feels like it ties into this larger conversation within international development and humanitarian response of who is making decisions yeah. for key populations that they might not have mm -hmm. re real insight into. Yeah. Would you say that that's, that's an ongoing issue that you see? Yeah, and I'm really grateful that Princess Mabel highlighted that earlier on in the week. You know, she said that she has a platform where she's able to do things, but she is not an adolescent girl. And so it's time that we partner really closely with that community in order to make change that looks like them and reflects their needs and values. Do you think, do you find it really meaningful that there is such a youth presence at this conference? Because we've heard from uh, Linda Gale Becker, mm -hmm. who, you know, is overseeing this entire conference, that it's the biggest youth envoy they've ever had. 
What does that mean for kind of the wider global AIDS and mm -hmm. HIV response? Um, I think it'd be difficult for me to say I find it really meaningful now because we've not yet gone beyond the conference and seen what's come out of it. And so in six months' time, in a year's time, when we look at what the youth have done as a result of being so widely partic participated in this conference, then we'd be able to say, yeah, that was actually really meaningful because it could just be, and I'm sure that's not the intention, but it could be that. It's like, well, we have so many youth here, but what are we, what are we empowering them to do as a result of being here? I, sorry, just come in. I, I was chatting to a, a youth advocate yesterday, and they were saying that even though you know it's great to see such big numbers mm -hmm. of young people here, that they still felt it was slightly tokenistic. Mm -hmm. That there was still sort of quite siloed in terms of the sessions. Was sort of this is a youth-led session, and yeah. then here's a sort of adult-led session. Yeah, it wasn't that she still didn't really feel like they kind of they kind of got it right. Yeah, you know? would you agree with that? Or? Yeah, I think in you know there's a particular session that they sort of had announced, and it was to do with adolescent girls. And they announced the panel and there's not one adolescent girl and so twitter had to really make a fuss and then there was an adolescent girl put on there oh what they just added her in at the last yeah minute they were like oh we've we've <laughs> updated you know the the program this is now what it looks like and i think things like that go to show that we have a long way in coming yeah um and i think it's not just about having youth organizations here there and everywhere it's about big organizations and institutions including those people and so yeah. i'm really grateful to have come out of a meeting with UNICEF where they've said, okay, how can we actually partner with you guys in a way that is meaningful and not just like, oh, we, we just refer to you every now and then when we want you to make a statement about a decision yeah. that we've already made and we're making. Yeah, um, so we were talking about this meeting right before we got on camera. Mm -hmm. you know, did you feel, it sounded from our conversation like you felt very good about mm -hmm. where that could lead. Like it's not just saying, oh, we're gonna have a youth focus and so mm -hmm. sure we'll meet with youth, but that there could be actual outcomes. Yeah, I think the fact that the UNICEF exec director is willing to sit down with youth and say, what are we not doing and what are we doing that is good? And what are some models you want us to take up on? What do you want UNICEF to look like to you as young people from us? And she was just so open to some of the ideas that were really put forward by a lot of people. And I'm really hopeful of what the outcomes of that will be. Yeah, I mean, one would hope that especially an agency like UNICEF mm -hmm. that is, you know, its mandate is to help children would yeah. be engaging youth on some mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. um, can I to go back to your question about adolescent girls and what you were saying about needing to sort of include them in the decision making. Mm -hmm. um, I've also sort of been hearing that, you know, the, the reason, one of the biggest reasons these girls aren't accessing services because they face sort of huge structural barriers yeah. in terms of you know gender norms um, being, being a big one and just mm -hmm. sort of general kind of conservative attitudes in, mm -hmm. in lots of developing countries. And one of the slightly other surprising things that seems to have come out is that you know it's often their husbands mm -hmm. or fathers that are preventing them, are the people that are sort of perpetuating these norms and preventing mm -hmm. them from accessing services. So we've we've seen quite a, a lot of discussion around including men and boys more mm -hmm. and there was the launch of um, a new 1.2 yeah, billion coalition Menstar um, the other day. Mm -hmm. how, d how do you sort of feel about that? Is that? Could that be a distraction from working, from targeting women and girls or do you think it's, it's a really necessary compliment? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I've seen a lot of tweets about that and um, it, yeah, it's one of those things where there've been some tweets that are like, we need to stop ignoring men in the response and I thought, We've we've, we've never done that in the in this response, and I'm yeah. I'm really grateful that I, I did see this tweet where it was like, in order to help women, we need to tackle the issues that we're facing with men, which I think is a valid point to yeah. a certain extent. But I think it's true, and um, I was speaking to Dr. Eva Avalos from Botswana the other day, 
and they've they've made some you know phenomenal strides in kind of having one of the highest viral suppression rates in the world but actually the issue with prep and women there is that the i think the leading cause of death for women there is backstreet abortions and so if we're offering prep to women it needs to come with a pa uh, a package of contraception mm -hmm. and then that feeds into the wider conversation about things like dtg and medication and how does it affect women and why are we not looking more closely at this and so yeah i think it's insane you know the amount of imbalances that come with mm -hmm. being a woman and being able to access services you know and really drawing kind of aids prevention or aids treatment mm -hmm. and drawing parallels or in combination excuse me with something like abortion kind of speaks to this wider conversation around integrating health services mm -hmm. sophie this is something that i know you were looking into coming into the conference you know what are you learning on that front yeah sure i mean yes it was it was flagged coming in as, as a big topic partly because the Lancet Commission came out with a big report last week um, really calling for integrated for HIV to be integrated into into wider health goals while at the same time possibly slightly contradictorily saying that you know HIV still needed though to have its own kind of special funding mechanisms and, and be elevated so I was never really quite sure how those two fit together but but anyway then in the opening ceremony on Monday you had Dr. Tedros the head of WHO giving a similar message, but really focusing on universal health care, which is his big sort of thing, and saying HIV needs to be rolled in with that. He walked um, into the press conference and said, I quote, I'm obsessed with UHC. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Everyone knew that was going to be his message. So um, so that sort of that, that's been talked about quite a lot. Um, and I was in a session yesterday where um, there were discussions around, there seemed to be sort of a general tenor amongst some people that, you know, this is a good opportunity to really get um, really, really, you know, scale up HIV services uh, and testing, etc. But there are also sort of caution and danger that it could become lost in the UHC agenda and sort of watered down, and and that some of the nuances and the and the targeting that's needed will, yeah, could could suffer from from being wrapped into a UHC agenda. Um, but at the same time, there's also been uh, an interesting study that was published yesterday, the the results of a three uh, three year randomized control trial. I think it's something like 300,000 people in Kenya and Uganda, it's called SEARCH, um, was the project. And it basically um, seemed to show that if you combine HIV testing and treatment with other NCD um, services, especially around diabetes and hypertension, uh, but then also TB, um, which if you have HIV, you're much more likely to, to get any of those things. And also cervical cancer is a big one that, um, that PEPFAR and Ambassador Burks have been talking about, which I think women who have HIV are five times more likely to get cervical cancer. Anyway, this search study, it was quite sort of hotly anticipated, but seemed to show that um, HIV testing and treatment had really good knock-on effects for these other diseases as well, that, that you know, um, the number of deaths from HIV infections went down by, I think, 30% in the control group that, um, that was receiving the testing and treatment, and they'd seen improvements in the way people were handling if they had diabetes or hypertension. It's been really interesting to watch. I mean, to your point, there are some very clear kind of narratives and bodies of work that have emerged this week, and it's it's unclear how they or if they really fit together. So there's UHC. There's the conversation around integrated programming. There's this idea that's being talked about a lot, given the Lancet study and IAS study, about exceptionalism with HIV with HIV response and funding that maybe the end is in sight rhetoric kind of overblew how close we are to ending AIDS and ending HIV and that maybe in turn that's had an impact on things like advocacy efforts or funding 
you have Mercy as an advocate and someone who's very engaged in this and has a personal connection. Do you get the sense that that's the case, that maybe there isn't as much energy around AIDS or HIV funding? Most um, definitely. Um, my speech on Monday was based around the theme of complacency. Um, and I was in the press conference just before the um, opening ceremony where Dr. Tedros outlined quite simply, we're not going to meet the 2020 targets. And actually, as a young girl born with HIV, living with HIV, advocating for those living with HIV, knowing that Dr. Tedros, who's so high up in the WHO, has abandoned, not abandoned the vision in the sense of like he can't be bothered, but he's recognized that we're not going to reach that. But there's been nobody to say, so this is what we're going to do as a result of that. And actually, the longer we go on talking about we're going to end AIDS by 2030. When we get to 2030, this generation that we like to call Gen End It, are we all going to reach 2030 and be like, guys, we, we can never achieve the goal? You know, what are we actually doing with these global targets? How are they actually spurring us on if there is so much complacency around the issue? And is it that we need to focus on little steps? Is it we need to revamp leadership? Because we can't simply have people that sit there and say, we're not going to be able to reach that and nothing more. The UNH report that was released last week was such a defeat, but how are we going to move on from that and move forward? So in your view, do you think that those things like a revamp of leadership and, and baby steps are the way to go? Or kind of from where you sit, where would you hope that energy would be focused? Yeah, most definitely. I think energy needs to be focused on leadership and engaging young people in leadership because we talk about how they're the future, but what does it actually look like for me in future to be in those positions of leadership? And how will I know how to do a good job if we're not seeing an exemplary example? And I'm, I'm not bashing anybody, I'm just saying that we need to get away with this complacency and get rid of that. For anyone who's just tuning in, I'm Kate Midden with DevEx, speaking with Mercy Angalube from the SOFIA Forum and Sophie Edwards, journalist with DevEx. If you have questions, please feel free to leave them in the comments or tweet them at us using hashtag DevExTV. So I do want to take a step back and look at some of the other big stories that are emerging this week. Um, something that I feel has come up in every session is key populations, one of which, of course, is adolescent girls. But Sophie, what are you hearing about the other populations that we're talking about as well? Uh, yeah, we, so we've been hearing a lot about um, um, sex workers, uh, men who have sex with men, um, drug users as well. I think um, people who inject drugs, that seems to have one of the highest um, infection rates and it, it's climbing, it's, sort of, it's grown exponentially over the, the last few years, especially in um, parts of Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And so that's been actually quite high on the agenda and I think there's, there's a feeling that they're, they're often left out of the conversation um, and there's a, there's a sense of there's, that's partly a political reason, I think in in Eastern Europe, um, especially Peter Piet, who's the head of uh, the London School for Tropical Medicine, uh, Medicine and Hygiene, who gave a, a speech yesterday, he was saying that it's you know it's basically Eastern European politicians and, and Russia, for example, just don't want to acknowledge that there's a problem, so they're not putting money into prevention services such as um, needle exchanges um, and you know um, opioid um, replacement therapies like methadone. Um, because that would, you know, be, be admitting that, that, that there is an issue, and they don't want to. So I think that he sees that as a very alarming and growing problem 
among the, the key populations that needs that needs swift action. Yeah, and you're mentioning Eastern Europe, who's also big, been a big regional theme this week. Elton John came out and announced that the Elton John AIDS Foundation would be given would be standing up an emergency response fund that would be focused mostly on Russia. Can you talk a little bit about what was behind that? Um, I think it's, it's probably very much this, um, this sense that it's been um, a neglected um, subset of, of HIV um, funding um, for, for a long time now, and it, and it needs to change because mm -hmm. it, it's where the problem seems to be accelerating the fastest. And Mercy, what are some of the big conversations that have kind of, that you have seen as themes emerge throughout the week? You think that you probably have kind of a different perspective, being very much engaged on the youth side, even mm. though these youth and the rest of the conference should not be looked at as two different tracks. Mm. But as we were talking about earlier, there is a little bit of a wall there in terms of where youth, the different events that are being marketed, that sort of thing. What are the big conversations you're hearing? Yeah, I think one of the things I've been thinking about most this week in terms of key populations and youth involvement is the idea that yes, we have a lot of world leaders and people that are not willing to acknowledge these key populations. And really that's what this fight against HIV and AIDS is, is about how do we bring those people in from the margins and how do we include them in a society that is rights-based and justice-based. Um, and I think really from the youth perspective, it's about crying out for a seat at the table a lot of the time and how are we getting access to the right to you know, be seen as equals in this game. And like you've said, youth involvement and the conference should not be as separate things but how are we going to get them to an equal playing ground without begging for oh can we have a seat at the table please like it'd be great to have some youth involvement no it should just be that that's a thing um and so yeah that's what i've taken away from that give a voice to the people that you are trying to support mm. with your money and your organization mm. is what i'm hearing mm. yeah on that front. um do we have time to go back to the key population stuff yeah of course um is it another thing that that we're seeing quite a lot of discussion around is uh, criminalization. Um, and we, we actually did a Facebook Live here yesterday um, because a, a statement had been released sort of saying that um, where HIV is essentially criminalized in many countries and is really big in America as well, um, that this was sort of scientific evidence basically kind of detonating all the reasons behind those laws, you know, around the fact that, you know, if you're on treatment, you actually incredibly unlikely to to transmit HIV if you're positive uh, that you can't transmit it through saliva for example or or spitting which is you know the basis of some of these laws um, so there's been a big push to sort of to, to decriminalize HIV which would take away some of the discrimination and stigma which is is what makes these key populations so hard to reach in some instances um, and there's also been some new kind of work around um, some new studies that came out today around um, decriminalizing sex work and whether that's a good thing or not. Um, there were two studies that were published today showing that um, criminalizing the the, youth, the the person that buys the service, if they if that's criminalized, it doesn't actually help the sex workers themselves. They're still not. They're actually less likely to access services as a result because it just sort of pushes the whole transaction further underground and actually creates more stigma, more barriers, and more discrimination. So. There's quite a lot of debate around that as well, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah, it feels like there's also been a lot of energy and uh, energy around ending stigma has yeah. been another big conversation. Um, I d so we have about eight minutes left, and there are two last things that I definitely want to get to. And one is I think we'd be remiss if we did not talk a little bit about the controversy around Michelle Sidibe, the head of UNAIDS, who spoke at the end of the opening plenary um, earlier this week, he was sort of 
you know, ambushed in the beginning of the speech by protesters. There's been a huge kind of civil society, um, you know, activist lens at this conference. Um, Sophie, you did a report yeah. on this. Could you give us a little bit of background? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Michelle Sidibe, he's been sort of in the spotlight for a couple of months now after um, allegations emerged that he, uh, to quote the protesters actually, that they called him an enabler and protector of sexual harassment because his his deputy at the time was accused of um, sexually harassing or um, a, one of the members of staff. There was an internal investigation. He was cleared, but it's now being said that that wasn't done properly and there have been calls for a new one. and calls for, for Sidibe's resignation for, for having kind of handled, mishandled the whole situation. So he came onto the stage from what we, we sort of been hearing from people. It was actually touch and go whether he was really going to speak at all. I think there was, there was quite a big movement from among the organizers to say that he, he shouldn't be given a voice on the stage. People are so unhappy with how he's handled it. But a compromise was reached that he'd speak at the opening and not the closing and that he would come, he'd come on pretty late when I think hopefully most people had gone home. Was sort of was sort of the hope, and that the ceremony was running quite late, so it wasn't a full auditorium when he was there. But nonetheless, you know, 23 protesters came and sort of held hands and, and formed a sort of barrier in front of the stage and, and read out a statement, which basically called for him to resign. Um, so that was all very very dramatic. Um, but he hasn't. Um, and if you talk to UNAIDS, you know, he's he's very much wants to stay in place. He sort of basically said, you know we're losing this fight against HIV AIDS, like now is not the time to be divided community, you know, we need to sort of come together and, and UNAIDS has a lot of work to do, that's sort of his, his kind of tone. And, yeah, and don't, don't pay attention to right. this thing. Yeah, pay or actually you're sort of, you know, thing. by going on about this, you're kind of damaging the, the good work we're trying to do. And I think that's been really badly received actually by lots of, lots of people, not just civil society groups, uh, who I think, you know, really think he should go. Because yeah. uh, it it's looks really bad for the for the whole fight. I mean, what do you think, Murphy? Yeah, no, I think it's interesting and having, you know, obviously I'm doing the Prudence Mabella session later in order to honor her and he brought her up, you know, as, as his sister and like a lot of people were angry at that and I think growing as a young woman into this movement and watching the power struggles and, you know, how to get things done um, has been one of those things that this has been really interesting to watch and it was, you know, when he was interrupted and, you know, he was saying, you know, I hear you and then came the but. Um, it was a really intense moment and you kind of everyone was like, oh, like yeah. is this gonna be the moment? And I guess it's gonna be difficult to watch it continue to play out because this has been such a huge conversation and it has been distracting from mm -hmm. what are we actually trying to achieve here? Um, and so what the resolution will actually be, I have no idea, but I, it's definitely gonna be an interesting chapter in the UNH history and for civil society. And that could come alongside the revamping of leadership that we really do need. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it does feel a little bit parallel, not maybe perhaps not quite so dramatic, but the New York Attorney General, you know, recently there was a similar conversation in the US where it came out he had done a lot of really egregious stuff, but he was enacting policies that were very pro-woman, pro pro-minority. Um, it's a complicated question, so it will be interesting to see where that goes. And then on the final point, Mercy, you made this point earlier that I think, you know, was really is really important about, you know, youth or key populations shouldn't have to fight for a seat at the table about, you know, their own programming, essentially, and their own, you know, human rights at the very core of it. Um, they should just be offered that and given that. Until we're there, 
what do you see is kind of the role of activism in getting there? And do you have any you know tips for young advocates, activists, um, to kind of deliver on this mission and get that seat at the table? Yeah, I think activism has a place in that of just pushing the agenda and making people see the world in a different way and understand. I think at the root of activism really just lies that can you recognize this population as being human beings? And then once we get there, it's a lot easier to pass policies and laws that actually um, support that. And so I think that's the role of activism. It's a tiring role, um, but that really is the role, you know, sort of having to justify our own humanity time and time and time again. Um, but my advice for young activists is if you're really passionate about our movement, then you know, keep going, but when it does get hard and when you do need to take time out, don't feel afraid to do that. It's not like you're gonna take a week's holiday and then you're gonna come back and be like, oh, we ended AIDS without you. Like, oh, you know, <laughs> um, there's always gonna be something to do. And I think that's something I've really had to come to accept even in the looming face of these 2020 and 2030 goals that, you know, make it look like something's actually going to happen. Um, and I think it's just about recognizing the small steps you can take and not feeling defeated when there's a defeat because there's always going to be a victory. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Mercy <laughs> Angalube, Sophie Edwards, thank you so much for joining us this week. You can keep on top of the conversation by following hashtag AIDS2018 and hashtag AIDS2018Live. Please be sure to tune in next week, 12 noon Eastern Time. Thank you so much. <laughs>